Welcome to the Normal Christian Life Podcast with Pastor Stephen Samuel. As you listen, we know that you will be encouraged and challenged to follow the normal Christian life that Jesus offers to us. We would love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So please visit us online at icathedral.org. You can also find useful information about our church and other resources that will help you grow in your journey with Christ. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Sometimes when we think of fathers, some of you guys have severe, deep-seated father wounds, things that maybe a dad has done to you that just wasn't right. But you can't look at God through that broken lens. Like, you have to allow God to heal the perception of who he is in your heart that some man or some woman might have broken. Every one of us were created to want a father, a good father at that, right? And so Jesus unfolds to the disciples, you have to know that you have a father who's in heaven. And he is actually a good father. Now, I know all of us assume that God's a good father, but there's a lot of people that believe, even though that God is their father, they don't perceive him to be good. Now, this is a fundamental, fundamental truth, but yet you have to get it into your heart. Because if you don't believe God is good, then what happens is every time a tragedy happens in your life, you begin to accuse God, whether, conscious, whether verbally or just consciously, you begin to accuse God. He's the reason why bad things are happening to you. Why is that so important that you get that thing cleared out of your, your thinking? Because if you always suspect that God could be the culprit, you'll never suspect that he's on your side. If he's all the one, always the one working against you, you always have this sense of hopelessness. Like, if God can't help me, then who can? Right? You always have this perception that God's against me and that we're working for his favor. Right? I've talked to thousands, and, well, about this time in my life, thousands of people whose fathers abuse them and they perceive God is abusive. They'll never say it with their mouth, but when bad things happen, well, this is God trying to teach me a lesson. And listen, that is not an okay belief. That belief in itself will destroy your walk with the Lord. You'll begin to believe that God is against you when he has bent heaven and earth, sent his own son to die for you, not to prove to you that he hates you, but to prove to you that he loves you. It's amazing. We can believe the doctrine of the atonement that God sent his son, died on a cross, the most horrible possible way of dying, crucifixion. And yet we believing that to be a truth can believe somehow that God still doesn't like us. Listen, if he sent his son to die on the cross for us, guess what? He kind of likes us, right? The Bible says it like this. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? God laid down himself so that he could show us how he loves us. Okay, let's look at this. If we don't believe that God's a good father, it's hard for us to be a good son. And when I say the word son, I'm talking it's a gender-neutral word. All of us are called sons of God, right? The Bible says that we all are also the bride of Christ. Good luck, guys, with that one, right? So it's not necessarily gender-specific, like males have a better shot at relationship with God than females do. When he talks about sonship, the idea of sonship in the Jewish culture is not so much whether it's a male or female, although it includes that, but it's the one who is direct inheritance, or the the heir of the one who's the father. And when God gives us the title that we are his sons, 
He's not saying that, you know, well, you just have this male role available, available in his family. He wants people that look like him, that have his nature and character. Jesus came, and the Bible says he's the firstborn among many brethren, which means he was the pattern by which God wanted to show how relationship with him could be, okay? If we don't believe that God is good, I'm just going to hit this one more time, something begins to change in our way we perceive, not just God, but ourselves. And here's the crazy part. How you treat other people is affected by what you believe about God. If you don't believe God is good, essentially, you'll never really trust people. There's no such thing as, I really put my confidence in someone, but I don't think I can trust God. If you can't trust God, you'll always suspect people are some way, some way trying to manipulate and take advantage of you, right? You become the victim. How you relate or how you perceive God's nature towards you not only affects your relationship with him, but it reflects your relationship with each other and then your perception of who you are. If you think God is against you all the time, you begin to think after a while something's wrong with you. And listen, that is a characteristic lie of the enemy. Believers going through life always thinking there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Because at the core of that, what are you saying? God made me like this. God made me like this. There's something wrong with me. And one day, by the grace of God, maybe I'll get over it, even though I can't quite define what's wrong with me. And listen, that's a lie. When God called you and made you his, he didn't do it because there's something wrong with you. He did it and he made you perfect. The Bible says in Romans 8, whom he foreknew, he called, and who he called, he predestined to be his sons. And then he justified them, right? He made them perfect by virtue of your faith in him. He made you perfect. So even when the enemy lies to you and says there's something wrong with you, here's the deal. It's a lie. But if you believe the lie, you begin to fulfill the lie with constant self-deception that there's something wrong with you. And listen, there's people that can live a lie their whole life. And then when we get to heaven, guess what happens? We realize it was a lie, right? It was a lie. God wants you to believe correctly about him, not just for the benefit of your relationship with him, but for the benefit of your relationship with others and the benefit of your perception of yourself. Okay, read on here. There's a pathway to living the destiny that God has created for you. It begins and ends with you knowing and experiencing him. And that's two, pro- two steps there. It's not enough just to know things about God until you experience what he wants you to experience about who he is. It never gets down into your heart. Listen, I can sit up here and, and draw diagrams and pictures and play videos of how to swim. And most of you guys, I hope, know how to swim, right? But let's say you don't know how to swim. And I could take you through a semester-long class at Lamar University on buoyancy and the physics of swimming, and you could pass the tests, and you could have all the knowledge of why you can possibly swim. But you know what? It doesn't mean anything until you get in the water. You could ace the class and drown. You know what I'm saying? And so many times, we in our Christian faith, we, we equate getting knowledge about God with experiencing him. And they are worlds apart. Because knowledge is the explanation of what the experience is. Knowledge is just the explanation 
of what the experience is. But if you never have the experience, the knowledge just puffs you up with pride. You can be an expert. You can have a doctorate in swimming and still drown. You know what I'm saying? Listen, there's people that have a doctorate in theology and they're still going to hell. Because they've equated the acquisition or the acquiring of knowledge with experiencing who Jesus is. And they're not the same. All of his disciples, not one of them had a theology degree. But they knew Jesus. And I'm not downplaying knowledge. I'm just saying knowledge is such a limited approach to developing a relationship with God. You can know about him, but never experience him. Knowing about him doesn't endow you with power to be his disciple. Experiencing the Holy Spirit is what gives you the power to be a disciple. If you don't have the experience, you can talk all day and nothing will change. Some of the most powerful men of God I know, and this is a horrible statement, I'm just going to tell you, are the worst preachers I know. (laughs) But when they decide to move in power, guess what? The Spirit of God shows up. There's a guy I know, he's raised, I don't know how many people from the dead, but he gets up to preach and he's just, for all intents and purposes, just a lousy preacher. But when he says it's time to pray for the sick, I mean, like, sick people get healed. And you know what that tells me? It's not knowledge that got him to that place. It's his present time in the presence of Jesus that got him to this place. And so I'm telling you guys to move forward in your relationship with God in the sense of fulfilling your destiny. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about I have a great relationship with God. That relationship has to do something in the world, right? Because if it's always just about you and your relationship with God, that's a very inverted perception, an inverted purpose. But God has called us to change a world. He didn't say to the disciples, listen, y'all go into all the world and have a good relationship with me. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching the things that I've commanded you. And by the way, as you're going, guess what? Heal the sick, open the blind eyes, open the deaf ears, make the lame walk. And he says, freely you've received all these things, freely give. They had to give the experience that they had. And you and I are no different than those 12 disciples the early disciples that were set apart. We have to give the experience of who God is to people instead of trying to just convince them to believe things based on the fact that we've studied it. People must experience God's presence. There's something that happens when you encounter God's presence. It begins to change who you are. You go from being selfish to being gracious, from being self-centered to being people-centered. And it's not something that just methodically happens. It's just a constant exposure to his presence. Constant. And listen, every believer that's growing in the Lord, guess what? They're being changed. Some of you, we kind of run out of patience when people are changing. But the truth is, people are being changed in the presence of God. You and I have to encounter God's presence, not just for our personal transformation, but because there's a world that's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. In Romans chapter 8, toward the end it says, and all of creation is waiting for the manifestation, the revealing of the sons of God. There will be a generation that so lays hold of this principle of experiencing and demonstrating God's power that they will change the face of the world. And you and I can be a part of that generation. We look through history and we see these men and women of God that rose up and they literally transformed Cities at a time. 
whole communities. But there's never been a generation that has transformed the world. You know what I'm saying? And you and I can be a part of that. But it starts with this place of consistent experiencing God, consistently experiencing God. John chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus gives this promise to the disciples. He says, at that day, and what day is he talking about? The day after he dies and rises again, and he begins to launch this New Testament church. He says, on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see how you've been brought into the Godhead in the sense of you're now a part of his family? He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, this, what, this puts the, the concept of obeying God's commandments in context. A lot of times, we look at the commandments, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the moral law that God has set apart, in the Beatitudes, or whatever portion of Scripture you look at, and we think, well, man, God can't be just all about the rules. It has nothing to do with the rules. The rules are the, the entrance ramp into relationship. You can't live a lifestyle that grieves the heart of God and still maintain a great relationship with Him. And right now, what's happening in our culture is the Christian faith, the ideologies, the commandments, and the doctrines that we've been taught as children, they're being challenged because we have this perception that we can love God and yet do it our way. And you can't. You can't fool God. You can probably fool your girlfriend, probably fool your boyfriend, but you can't fool him. And he says, listen, this is how you enter into the relationship with me. This is how you sustain the relationship with me. You keep my commandments. Because his commandments, what do they do? They keep us from following our own desires and keep our eyes focused on following his desire. It's about the relationship that he's trying to preserve. And what does he say will happen here? He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, notice he has them, and then he keeps them. You can't get out of that one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who... Okay, now this is really simple. You can't say you love Jesus and not keep his commandments. Because what you're really saying is, I don't really like him. I like what I want to do. Every time I, I do counseling with someone who's addicted to whatever, cocaine, pornography, whatever, it's amazing. You have to get that person to a place where they say they like that, more than the results that you're trying to get them to. That's really what it is. When I can't give up this substance or whatever, what I'm really saying is, I want that more than I want this relationship with God. And you have to come down to the bare bones reality. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Is it easy? It's not always easy. But the Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us to do what? Keep his commandments. But at no point is the power, empowerment of the Holy Spirit going to override your will. You still have a choice in the matter. You still have a choice in the matter. Because if you didn't have a choice in the matter, it wouldn't be an issue of love. It would just be an issue of servitude. Right? And so he says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me, here's the response, will be loved by my, and notice the word here, father. He reintroduces this concept of how the relationship between the believer and his creator should be. It's not a mystical relationship. It's not a subservient relationship. It's like a father and a son. That's what it looks like. And then he goes on, he says, watch this. 
then I will love him. And I will manifest myself to him. He didn't say, I will love him and I will teach him everything I know. He said, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Every believer should expect to mature to a place in their walk with God where they experience Jesus on a regular basis. Where he shows up in your quiet time. He shows up when you're driving. He speaks to you on a regular basis. You and I should experience Jesus. We're not serving a book. We're serving a God. We're not serving a code of ethics. We're serving a God who is alive. See, here's the funny part. Before the Bible was written, Christianity took over the world. Before it was written, compiled into one book in 300 A.D., the Christians took over the known world. So it wasn't a requirement that everyone had the knowledge of what the New Testament doctrine was. The requirement was they had to meet Jesus. And if they didn't meet Jesus, it became very evident. And if they had met him, people knew. It's always built around a person, Jesus. Is the scripture there for our benefit? Absolutely. Is the Bible important? Absolutely. But a relationship with the knowledge that the Bible offers is not a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship with the knowledge that it offers. And that knowledge cannot save. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except Jesus. Okay. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, I want to read this passage to you. The writer is talking about faith here, and he says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, in, in, in my lifetime and in your lifetime, there's a lot of reasons why people don't believe that God's good. Of course, most people will never admit that. You know, we all learned little statements in church. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's so annoying when I hear that. I don't, I don't know why. It's just it's like a bunch of parrots, you know. But we're programmed to believe things about God that maybe we don't really believe in our heart. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying anything's wrong with that practice. I'm just saying a lot of times we adopt beliefs in us because we've just heard it so many times. And so when you ask somebody, is God good? Their candid and somewhat programmed response is, yes, God's good. And then you start probing a little deeper than just the programmed response and you find out they really don't believe God is good to them. Or they have to redefine what good means and what bad means to qualify God to be good. Listen, that's not... That's not even logical. If you redefine what good and bad is for God to fit your definition, what you're really saying is God's not good. He actually is bad, but I just don't want to accuse him of being bad. Or I perceive him to be bad. I just don't want to accuse him. And here the writer of Hebrews says, first, it's impossible to please God without faith. And and what's the process of that? First, he must believe that God exists. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer, but there's some people that still struggle with that one, right? First, that he is. And then he says what? He is a rewarder of those who seek him. That God's response to people that try to approach him is a good response. It's never a bad response. That God is actually in this for you. The whole process of atonement is to get you close to him. It's not just this God wanted to be glorified and he needs all this glory and that's why we're worshiping him. 
you're at the center of the reason why he came and did what he did. It's not because he just needed to have some great saga so somebody could write a great novel. You know what I'm saying? You're at the center of this. Now watch what he says here. Jump to Roman, I'm sorry, in uh, Luke chapter 11. You go there real quick. I'm, let me hit this point real quick. Many times people don't believe God is good for a few reasons. First, bad experiences in life. Something tragic happened in your life. Whether it's sickness, death, tragedies, cause us to question God. And that's totally understandable. Listen, I've been through enough hell to tell you there are times when you go through stuff and you say, God, if you're a good God, then why the heck did this happen to me? And listen, that is a valid, very valid question. But I challenge you, if you're going to ask the question, you better wait for the answer. Because a lot of times we like to point the finger at God and say, it's your fault without waiting for him to show us what he's doing in us. Not that he inspired the evil or incited the evil, but there's an evil enemy that's against us, and God can even take his act and turn it around for our good. Right? God is a good God. But many times the enemy will attack us and make us blame God, the only one that can actually help us out of the problem. God's a good God, and he desires to help us not just redeem our life, but the lives of others, because we know his goodness. Every time I pray for the sick, I'd love to tell you they get healed. But I have to believe in my heart for healing to come that it's God's will that they be healed. Because I promise you, if I pray for people with doubt in my heart, there's a good chance nothing will happen. Jesus said at Mark chapter 11, when you pray, believe that you receive those things which you pray, right? But if you don't believe in them, guess what? You'll not receive it. James chapter one says, let not a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And let not that man think he will receive anything from God. My core belief that God desires good things for people is necessary for God to work through me on a consistent basis to touch people. If I don't believe that he's good, then guess what? Every time I don't see him immediately respond, the doubt kicks in that maybe God's will isn't good for this person. And that is a lie. That's a lie. God's will is always good for people. The second reason why people uh, doubt God's goodness is they've accepted that somehow God will use evil things to show us his good good nature. We believe that God is going to use the evil in the world as if he needs more help from the devil to show us his nature. Right? That's not going to happen. God can show you who he is by his kindness, not by the wickedness of the enemy. The Bible says, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. The what? The goodness of God. Not the evil that God can perpetrate against you to show you that he's really God. Right? The next thing. We have heard those who have defined God out of their tragedy rather than out of his word. And listen, I've heard some intense stories of tragedy, and how people have turned it to make it look like God actually inspired the tragedy to bring them close to him. That's not the case. No matter how heart-wrenching the story is, when it contradicts what God's word says about himself, it's just a heart-wrenching story. It's not good theology, right? God's word defines to us who God is. If anything, Jesus came to show us the nature of God, and there wasn't a sick person that Jesus didn't heal. There wasn't a person that cried out to him who didn't get help. His response was always, 
yes, I'm going to help you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to open your eyes. Whatever was the need, he met it. That is the nature of who God is. Colossians says that Jesus, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means everything that God wanted to show us about who he was, he showed us that in Jesus. Okay? Last thing, people substitute wrong ideas of God in place of, in place of their ignorance. St- what I'm saying is this. Rather than saying, hey, look, I don't know, we'll form theology to explain how we possibly may know what we really don't. And all those practices, if you will, begin to build in our mind this perception, this false idea that God's not good. Okay, go with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Y'all still with me? I look a little tired. Don't worry, we're almost done. You say, God is so good. All the time. (laughs) Read this passage with me. And it came to pass that he was praying, talking about Jesus in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, I'm going to read this, so kind of hang on with me, ready? He said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, watch this, what he says here. Right after he tells them how to pray, he says, Which one of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he, though he will not rise and give to him because of his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any, any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? Here's the story. Jesus tells the disciples how to pray, and the moment he teaches them how to pray, he goes into this dialogue. He says, listen, how many of you guys, let's say you have a friend come over at night. Now, this is, you got to understand the Jewish culture. Most of the people lived in what we perceive to be a one-bedroom house right? So everybody slept together in the same room, right? And so for a dad to wake up or a mom to wake up and go get food means you got to wake up the whole family. For those that don't have kids, when one kid wakes up, they all wake up. It's like a chain reaction. I don't know how it happens. They just all know it's time to get up, right? And so he says, which one of you go to, a neighbor's, go to your neighbor's house? And when you have, let's say you have a late visitor show up at your house and you don't have anything to feed him, Right? And you go to your neighbor and you knock on his door. You say, look, I need some food. I got friends coming over. And in the Jewish culture, it's a very, what's the word, unhospitable thing to turn down somebody that asks you for food. And so they would always have more than enough food to feed the poor, the hungry, blah, 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 visitors that would come in unexpected. And so in the culture, Jesus is saying, if that's the scenario with this cultural backdrop, he says, how many of you going to your friend would knock on the door and your friend Not because he's your friend, but because of your persistence would just answer and give you what you need. And he said, how much more will God 
Not because you're persistent, but because he's your father, he's going to answer you. So he's painting for them the picture so starkly different than what they were used to understanding about praying to God. Because the Jews up to that day believed that their prayers to God were heard because of their own righteousness. And Jesus is saying, your prayers are heard because of the relationship you have with him. He's your father. And he says, how many of you, if you go to God and you ask and you keep on asking, think he's going to turn you away? He's not going to be like a horrible dad where if you ask him for bread, he's going to give you a rock. Or if you ask him for a fish, he's going to give you a snake, right? I mean, we'd look at a dad like that and think, that guy's kind of jacked up, you know what I'm saying? It's not even funny, especially not for the kid, right? And he says, if you, being evil, know how to give good things to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I I kind of... As I was going through this, I kind of wondered about this because he didn't say how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts. He says how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit because he is the answer to everything we need. God doesn't want to just give you the answer. He wants to make you the answer and he makes you the answer by putting the Holy Spirit right inside of you. It goes beyond what you're asking. You say, God, I need, I need a job. And he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you that makes you more than just an employee. He can lead you to places of great wealth and successes if you'll follow his voice. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, many times we go to God for just a toothache. And he tells a story. When he was a kid, he'd have a toothache. And he'd hate to go to his mom because his mom, though she would remedy the problem for the evening and he would sleep good, the next morning meant he'd have to go to the dentist. And he didn't want to go to the dentist, so he was just trying to hold the pain as long as he could hold the pain. Then finally, he goes, and of course, the mom fixes the problem, and the next morning, they have to go to the dentist. And he said, God's like that in this way. When we go to God for a little problem, God, I got this horrible relationship problem. And God says, not just I'm going to fix your relationship problem. He comes in and says, I'm going to fix you. Well, God, I don't want you to fix me. I want you to fix them. I'm going to fix you. We go to God wanting to fix a leaky faucet, and he wants to build us a new house, right? Because that's the way he rolls. (laughs) You go to God and say, God, look, I just have a little anxiety problem. And he says, let me show you your destiny for the rest of your life. And you're like, I mentioned I had an anxiety problem, right? And he begins to unfold to you his great wisdom, his great power of who he is so that your problem becomes proportionally insignificant to the calling he has over your life. But a lot of times people look at that little problem and think, I just want you to fix this. And he's saying, I can't just fix that for you. My goodness is so great, I've got to fix you for you to experience this goodness. He never stops He's relentlessly going to keep pushing you to get the new mansion. And you'll keep looking at that leaky faucet. (laughs) Oh, God, (laughs) just fix the faucet. And he's like, I've got a bigger house. Just let me demolition this one down, take all the junk out, and build you a new one. Is it painful? Absolutely. Why? Because we have to let go of our small worldview. We have to let go of the different ways we've thought how God can fix the faucet. It's not that he doesn't care about the faucet. 
but there's better faucets in the new house, right? He's asking you. Many of us go to God, God, I just want a good little job. I just want to graduate Lamar. I just, so like, I just need to pass the test tomorrow. <laughs> and he's saying to you, I have a life for you that goes beyond just the simple things, although they're necessary. He's saying, if you'll follow me, I'll teach you how to live this supernatural life. I'll teach you how to think like I think. It's not that God's not attentive to the details, but the details become proportional to the reality that you want to live in. When he said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, he meant seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. What God is after is you, the complete you, so that you could be like him. He wants you to be his child. You have to have this belief first in your heart that he's your father. Secondly, that he's good. He's a really good God. He's not against you. There's not a shadow, James says. He says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. God couldn't be bad if he wanted to be bad because he can't act outside of his nature. Let me give it to you like this. There's no way I could not be me because even me acting like I'm not some, myself, I'm still me in the acting. God cannot be evil. Evil is the absence of who he is. That's how evil, if he was, was created. It actually wasn't created. It's the absence of God's creative power. God cannot be evil. And every thought, vain imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, listen, you and I have the choice to either believe the lie or to bring it down. Listen, I know it's hard sometimes because you're going through life and you trip over this and you fall over this and this happens and that happens and we just want to absorb the common theology that God's a good God but he's putting me through bad stuff and it's a lie. He's a good God who wants you to live an overcoming life. There's no doctrine of suffering with God. There's no reason for suffering except for the sake of Jesus, right? Right? God doesn't want us to suffer with sickness and disease. He doesn't want us to suffer with poverty. He doesn't want us to suffer with things that he has put into our control to be lords, kings over. But you have to believe it first to enter into it. And listen, don't think for a moment there won't be challenges to your belief that God is good. The enemy will always try to change your mind on that topic. Always. But you can't give him room. You can't give him room. Now listen, when things go wrong in my life... I probably react the same way you do. I go to God and say, okay, God, what did I do wrong? And you know what I found? That's really not an appropriate response. Because the Bible tells me that when God wants to correct me, you know what he does? Jesus told the disciples, you will be cleaned through the words which I've spoken to you. God's not playing a mind game with us. When God wants to correct you, he'll just straight out come and tell you, listen, your pride's a problem. You need to get it under control. Right? He's not going to make you fall off the bridge, right? When God wants to correct us, he corrects us with what? His word. We're clean through the words which he speaks to us. God doesn't, you know, put little images in the sky so you can kind of piece all the parts together to get the message. He's wrote a book for us to get directions out of. Like, it's that simple, right? 
we can go to God and say, God, what did I do wrong? But you know what I'm finding? Instead of going inward and saying, God, what did I do wrong? I'm saying, God, what are you trying to tell me? And then I'll listen for his correction if there's something to be corrected. Listen, if there's no correction that needs to be done, Paul tells us in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk after the flesh, but who walk after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. God wants us to live in a place where we're being led by the Holy Spirit. The enemy, sometimes we get so used to living under condemnation, when we don't feel condemned, we think God's not there. The truth is, when you don't feel condemned, that's when God is the most present. That's when he's the most present because you're in this reality that there's no condemnation for you to live under. You know, right now, sitting where you're at, no matter where your walk is with the Lord, let me tell you a little secret. God's happy with you. You know why he's happy with you? Because he's happy with Jesus, and you are in Jesus. You can't make it any better than that. You can't improve on how happy Jesus makes God. You can't. You can't even try. In fact, to try would do to be somewhat to lessen the value of Christ's work. Just enjoy it. It's like my kids. They can't make me any happier that they're my kids. They wake up. That's all they got to do. They're my kids. Every morning I wake them up, I love those kids. They don't have to do anything to get it. They usually smell a little funny. They usually, you know, fight to get up, but they're my kids. The reason I love them the way I love them is because they're mine. And nothing's going to change that. What's amazing is as helpless as they are sometimes, that's when we pour out the most affection for them. When they can just make funny noises and poop and throw up. We think they're the best thing in the world. Right? I mean, we give way more attention to their grossest stages of life, right, than they're, when they're, you know, older or whatever. It's the same way with us. The more you mess up sometimes, God's out there pouring his affection on you. He really is that good. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at icathedral.org or on social media via Instagram and Facebook, or most easily by downloading our app, Cathedral Church, in the app store of your choice. Until next time, keep living that not-so-normal Christian life.
That's my challenge for you this week, this semester. Will you humble yourself with us? We're not experts, but we have a passion to become like him.